the acceleration is so fast in a fighter jet and afterburners on the runway that, I mean, it throws you back into your seat as you run down the roar down the runway in an F-14, you can basically stand it right on its tail and go straight up. The, it almost in, in the space shuttle, it felt like I was kind of hovering off the pad initially. And it, the onset of the G-forces is much slower. Welcome to episode three of the Big Interviews Astronauts mini-series in which we sit down with pioneers who have left their mark on space exploration history. This series of the Big Interview is produced ahead of the Aim Higher Gala, which takes place on the 3rd of May at the Science Museum in London to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16 and the future of international space travel. This week, we meet Commander Susan Kilrain. Susan has flown two missions as a NASA astronaut, both aboard the Space Shuttle Columbia, the first of which was cut short by a technical failure necessitating an early return to Earth. Before passing NASA astronaut selection, Susan was a US Navy fighter pilot and test pilot, flying the F-14 Tomcat and the A-4 Skyhawk, among other aircraft. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Susan Kilrain on The Big Interview. Susan Kilrain, welcome to The Big Interview. Let's start, first of all, I guess, with the, the reason that we're doing this series of interviews, which is this looming 50th anniversary of Apollo 16. As someone who's worked in the space program and has been a NASA astronaut, how big an anniversary does that feel to you? I think any of the Apollo astronauts, you know, the Apollo landing anniversaries are huge. Every single year to me, and 50, of course, is the biggest. It's been an exciting time sort of reliving or, you know, going through the history of the Apollo program. I mean, from my point of view, the astronauts who walked on the moon and that flew to the moon and the first Mercury astronauts, those were the true heroes. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility base here. The eagle has landed. There was a lot of uncertainty in all of those missions. All of us look up to them. I was wondering about exactly that. Obviously, the rest of us earthbound schlubs tend to look up to any astronauts as these sort of extraordinary heroic figures. But is there a strata within astronauts that those of you who, you know, only went to orbit look at the men who went to the moon and think, wow, they really are a cut above? I mean, I can only really truly speak for myself, but I would be surprised if others don't feel the same way that the early astronauts and the Apollo astronauts and the initial space shuttle astronauts, I mean, they were, yes, a step above. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. They were flying something that was untested and going places that we had never been before. And much like the astronauts that will be flying on the Artemis program, going back to the moon. I mean, yes, of course we know how to get to the moon, but it's new technology, new rockets, new spaceships, and I don't know, better astronauts, right? They're not the right <laughs> word, but a new, uh, somebody to really look up to and a new uh, inspiration for generations. 
I want to go back to the beginning of your career because you pursued the path of being a, a military aviator and then an astronaut, which was had become quite a common one. But for you, was the end point of being an astronaut always the idea? Did you always see being a, a, a fighter pilot as a stepping stone to that? Yes, I joined the Navy specifically to become an astronaut. I got my degree in aerospace engineering to become an astronaut. That was always the plan that I developed once I got my private pilot's license back when I was a teenager. I just knew I wanted to fly every airplane and, and the faster, the higher, the better. And, and then the space shuttle came along and that seemed to be the fastest and the highest I could go. <laughs> Where did that impetus come from though? Because these are, I think, quite common um you know childhood dreams childhood ambitions and most of us fall well short of even you know taking the first step on the path that might get us there have you ever figured out what the difference was there between the person who you know certainly i did as a teenager thought wow gee it would be great to be a fighter pilot and the person who actually decides no i'm going to do that and actually then proceeds towards the goal well, honestly, when I got started, it didn't occur to me that it would be that big of a deal. No one told me I couldn't. No one said, you can't do that or no, nah, you're not smart enough or whatever. Just nobody said you can't do that. And so I just set off on the path. And, um, you know, other than being a woman before women could fly fighter pilots, <laughs> I mean, that was the first time I had been told, whoa, stop you can't do that. But then, you know, eventually that opened up to women as well. So, and by then we already had many women who had flown in space. So the doors sort of just opened up for me to walk through. If I've got this right, by the time you were designated a naval aviator in 1987, that's that's only about 13 years after I think Lieutenant Commander Barbara Rainey became the first US naval aviator. Did it still seem like unnecessarily uphill work for a woman to reach that status in the US Navy? Absolutely. You know, when I was in flight school, I was still the only woman. When I was in aviation officer candidate school, before I even got commissioned in the Navy, I was the only woman in my class of 60 people. So definitely it was rare. And I had no idea how many there were before me. And so it was still an uphill battle. I still knew that there were some people that didn't think I should be there. Did you never have any doubts of that sort yourself? You were talking earlier about how nobody ever said you couldn't do something. And I think that's a, a huge benefit to anybody as they pursue an ambition. But what I think at least as frequently stymies people is themselves telling themselves exactly that, that you can't do this, you shouldn't be here. Did you never suffer from that at all? I don't think I ever did. And partly because before I got to the next step, somebody else had done it already. I was not the first. I wasn't the first to do anything. So why not me? And as long as I worked hard, then I thought I could get there. But the flip side of that is I wanted to make sure I was enjoying the journey because hardly anybody becomes an astronaut. So I wanted to make sure I was enjoying the journey to getting there, which is why I quit my job as an engineer and joined the Navy to become a pilot because I thought that would have been more 
fun and more interesting and more challenging for me than being an engineer was. But not many people who start out on the journey to become a military aviator get all the way either. And I think, like I said, if you look at the vast numbers of teenagers who would think one day I would like to be a military aviator versus the number of people who do it, that's a that's a pretty tiny percentage. And, you know, my own ambitions in that area were thwarted at a very early stage by a complete lack of hand-to-eye coordination, discipline, ability to get out of bed in the morning, that kind of thing. So I do have to ask somewhat jealously, did you have a favourite aircraft to fly? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I'll talk about the favorite aircraft in a second. But back to your point, I already knew I could fly airplanes Mm. before I joined the Navy. And I think that's very advantageous. There was no question because I'd already gotten my private pilot's license and my instrument rating. And I was working towards a commercial rating. So I already knew I could fly. I had the um, stick and rudder skills mm-hmm. to fly. And I had the academics to back up test pilot school. And so I, that part, I didn't doubt at all. And so I felt like given the chance, I could definitely reach my goal of becoming a pilot for the Navy. And now favorite aircraft to fly. Definitely. I was flying the F-14 before when I got mm-hmm. selected by NASA. And that was a huge kick in the pants to fly, but I'm a, <laughs> kind of a small statured person. So it was a little bit large. The cockpit was Mm -hmm. for me, it wasn't quite as comfortable to fly as say the F-18 or the F-16 or the A-4, all fun airplane planes to fly. But yeah, the sheer power of the Tomcat um, and afterburner on the runway was definitely one of the favorite memories I have. Did the different aircraft you flew seem to have different characters? Were they Was it a very different experience in each of them? They all did have different characters and they were all were designed for different purposes mm. as well. So, yes, um, you know, whereas you would think of the, the A4 as a little sports car, but it was old technology. And then the um, F-14 was a very, you know, was quite larger and quite more powerful. And then of course the 18 was back to a newer age sports car and they all handled differently and they were all excelled for different reasons. Let's talk a bit about the journey from that towards becoming an astronaut. And this is a question that I, I have asked a few other astronauts in, in interviews we've done because it is that thing about converting ambition into reality is However much experience you have, and obviously the experience that you did have as a naval aviator was quite common background for people who've become astronauts, but is it difficult to overcome the voice in your head that actually keeps saying things like, come on, seriously, you're actually applying to be an astronaut, really, you're actually doing this, you, you're going to space. Does that become a factor? I don't think it did for me. The hardest part along the whole journey for me was getting into test pilot school. Mm. I applied three times before I was accepted. And it was important to me because by then I decided I wanted to be a space shuttle pilot, not a mission specialist. And so I had applied to test pilot school because you have to be a test pilot to be a space shuttle pilot. And I was told no two times in a row. And I think that the third application was going to be my final before I was going to consider, you know, other things. Do you get any feedback on that as into why you didn't get in the first two times? 
basically I was told by the first CEO that I went up and talked with about it was that um, the woman jet pilot that had come before me didn't do very well and he wasn't willing to take that chance again. He actually said that out loud where people might hear him. He did. And there was, I wasn't the only one in the room besides him either. So he did. He said that. And I was a little shocked. But really, honestly, the main reason I didn't get in is because women couldn't fly in combat. So I didn't have the, the on the ship experience flying mm. fighter jets that was really needed to bring to the testing environment. So there was no program for me after I got through test pilot school. And so those might've been his thoughts and he might've said that, but with looking back on it in all honesty, there wasn't a program for me to test mm. until they were looking for a new trainer aircraft. Then I had really no, no reason to go to test pilot school. But once they were gonna test a new training aircraft, I was perfectly qualified. For that program, I had been a flight instructor in the A-4. And so, and that was why I eventually got in to test pilot school. So what's the moment like when you're told that you have actually been selected for a, a shuttle mission? How, how do they tell you that this is happening, you are going to go? Once you're at NASA, anybody's guess how they actually decide. <laughs> I mean, of course, there are people who know, but I assume it's a, a group of people that get together and put crews together that was called into the chief astronaut's office and told that I was going to be flying on STS-83. I was very excited about that. Well, I, I would think, but that first experience of, of launching into space, even if you come from a background of having piloted any number of extraordinarily powerful machines, how different is it? Is it even in the, the same ballpark or just a whole other thing entirely? It is definitely a whole nother thing entirely. <laughs> uh, it, is, it, is, it is not like flying an airplane because it's not an airplane. It's a rocket. It only becomes an airplane when it returns to earth and then it's a it's a big old heavy glider in the launch phase it's a rocket it's not an airplane and it doesn't feel anything like an airplane so it's not remotely comparable to take off in a in a fighter jet at all i don't think so only because the acceleration is so fast in a fighter jet and afterburners on the runway mm. that i mean it throws you back into your seat as you run down the roar down the runway in an F-14, you can basically stand it right on its tail and go straight up. The it almost in in the space shuttle, it felt like I was kind of hovering off the pad initially. And it, the onset of the G-forces is much slower. And it's through a whole different axis because we're laying on our backs. And so it's through your chest axis and not through your head down through your spine, which of course is the same when you take off on a, a jet on the runway. Initially, it is through mm. your chest as well, but it's almost instantaneous. Whereas on the shuttle, it's for like two full minutes that you feel those G-forces. That first mission, of course, went very far from according to plan. It was supposed to be uh, for 15 days, and I think you end up coming home just short of four. 
what is the best way to explain, first of all, what actually went wrong? Well, we had a system failure in a fuel cell. Mm. A fuel cell is where we make electricity. And we have three fuel cells on board and where we mix oxygen and hydrogen together to make our electricity to power everything. So one of our fuel cells had indications that it wasn't behaving properly and we had to shut it down to prevent further failure and possibly it catching on fire. So we shut that fuel cell down. We're fine, we're safe, we have two fuel cells. We don't have all the electricity that we would like, but we have enough. But the problem is, is we are now one failure away from possible loss of the shuttle because it's very difficult to operate on one fuel cell and even more difficult to return to earth on one fuel cell. So because we were in that situation, the um, flight rules dictate that we have to return because we're only one, one failure away from possible loss of the shuttle. How quick a decision was that among the crew? I think there were seven of you. Do, do you get differing opinions about what you should or shouldn't do at a moment like that? Or are there incredibly detailed flowcharts that you just have to follow all the way through to the conclusion? For us, it was all done in mission control. And so Mm. we didn't even know all of the processes that were going on on the ground. We couldn't see the indication that they were seeing on the ground and they noticed it. They um, analyzed it, talked about it. And we weren't told anything until they said, we have this indication and we're going to have to shut that fuel cell down. I mean, that must have been an absolutely extraordinary disappointment. You have very literally come a long way at that point, and then to be told that you're going to get about a, a third of the mission that you thought you were going to get. I mean, obviously, you must embark on missions like that, thinking that there are any number of things that could go wrong, and of the things that could go wrong, that's probably at the milder end of them, given that everybody makes it back home. But was it a difficult thing to come to terms with? I mean, just at a, a basic human emotional level, that's that's got to rank as a pretty serious you know, professional disappointment. There are several things that were going on then. The payload specialists hmm. that had just been brought on for this one mission, they were devastated. They hadn't been able to do their science and this is their only chance to go to space. I'm sure the commander, it was his first command, he was you know, devastated as well. For me as a pilot on a science mission, I had done the launch. I had <laughs> floated around in space. I had done a few things. I ha- I was going to be able to still land. So for me, I was still checking off all my boxes. So it wasn't quite as devastating to me as it was to the others on board. However, we were also told fairly quickly by mission control that they were likely to fly us again in the future. And I think that on the one hand, we were thinking they're just telling us that so we keep up our spirits. (laughs) And on the other hand, we were thinking, wow, this is going to be a good deal. So, On the way back uh, from that that first journey, the the sort of earlier than expected return, was that a conversation you had amongst yourselves about how you were all feeling about this? Or at that point, are you still just trying to do the job and get this thing back home? For the most part, we were doing the procedures. I mean, because a ton of stuff had to be done. We Everything was going to be different. We had to, you know, 
fix all the procedures because we only had two fuel cells and what we could run and what we couldn't run. So we were very busy. But yes, we did talk a little bit about, do you think they really mean it? Are they really going to fly us again? So yeah, there was a lot of talk going on. And and interestingly enough, when we were notified, I think it was maybe at the end of day two, for me, it was, I was still feeling space sickness symptoms. And so I was like, great, let's get this bucket of bolts back on the ground and I'll feel better. But by the next day, those symptoms had gone away. And I thought, wow, I haven't even taken a photograph yet. So I think in the last day, I must have taken, you know, a thousand photographs to make up for not having taken much, many the first couple of days. I mean, you you did, of course, get to go back just a few months later uh, with the same crew. And this time the mission was completed to the, uh, well, the, the, the expected and hoped for duration. Does it feel different? when you go back, having some idea of what to expect? It's incredible what they learned about flying a crew three months later. There were no symptoms, space sickness symptoms of any kind. Not any of us felt anything. We got up on board. We were able to work at 100% capacity. We didn't uh, have, have, you know, we ate full meals straight off the bat. I mean, we literally ate all of our food on board because we didn't have those first few days of not eating much like many crews have, most crews have. So it was definitely a learning point that I don't think they've ever capitalized because they never flew people so quickly after that. But it did show that if you fly astronauts regularly, their bodies really adjust quickly. Was there something to be said for doing the same thing again with the same crew as well? Did everybody feel, I guess, a bit more excited and even a bit more grateful to have got that second chance? Definitely. We were all very excited to have a second chance to fly. And the scientists got two flights for the price of one, basically. (laughs) You know, they were just brought on for the one mission and and for them to be able to complete the science, but they got two launches and two landings. And yeah, so everybody was was very excited about it. When you came back from that mission, were you aware that that was probably or definitely the last time you were going to do this? Did you hope you'd be able to go again? Yeah, I planned to go again. That was always in the plan um, to fly again. In fact, I was working towards, you know, getting my next flight. I was working in mission control and But I got married and I was trying to figure out where we were going to plan a family and how that was all going to work in. And I thought, well, I probably am not going to fly anytime soon because I had a whole bunch of other pilots in my class. And so we decided to start a family. Plus, I wasn't getting any younger. So I did have a baby and I don't know, something changed in me at that point. I said, look, I don't want to fly right away. Um, now that I've just had the baby, uh, I would like to wait a little bit. My husband's job is even more dangerous than my job. So at some point I realized that something had to give. And with us at, by that time, we were kind of at perpetual war and my husband was deployed overseas all the time. I thought that I needed to be home more and that, and so I asked uh, the chief astronaut to not put me on the flight schedule anytime soon. And I continued working for NASA in the astronaut office until uh, we had our second. 
and then it just it just got to be too hard. Is it something, and there's not many people you know, qualified to answer this question, but once you've been to space a couple of times and then come back, and it is it is quite a while now, it, it's your 25th anniversary, in fact, this year, if I've, if I've done the maths right, is it something you still find yourself thinking about much? I do a lot of speaking about mm. it, so it's always in my in my mind, and I uh, I relive the memories, of course. There's a little piece of me that wish I would have stuck around and flown again, but logistically, it just wouldn't have worked for our family situation. And I'm in, and a lot of my friends are are still astronauts or are former astronauts. So I mean, yeah, it's always always something I think about. Because I, I think it's, again, this is something that the, the rest of us who haven't done it wonder about, and I'm sure you get asked it a lot, but that idea that once you've seen the world in a way that the rest of us have not and cannot, do you undergo any kind of great epiphany about anything, or is it just a question of thinking, wow, that's a really cool view? <laughs> well, it is a really cool view, but yes, I think that most astronauts have some sort of a larger understanding of Earth and the fragility of Earth, especially when you look down and see how thin the atmosphere is. And um, it brings you a little bit closer to understanding our role in protecting Earth and how we're kind of just a spaceship floating through space. So yeah, most astronauts have all that, those feelings. And you know, people ask me all the time, what do I think about the all the other folks flying in space, the you know SpaceX or mm. Blue Origin or, or whatever? And and for me personally, the more people that can see Earth from that vantage point and spread the you know the word of what they saw is better. I mean, it's better for humanity and Earth. How far do you think we are from it being something that more or less you know anybody can do, assuming they can run to the cost of a ticket? I think that we're going to see more organizations taking people into space and the price coming down. It's hard for me to project that it'll ever be something that the average Joe can mm. throw down, you know, a few hundred bucks and go into space. But hey, they probably they said the same thing when we started flying airplanes. <laughs> you know, commercial air flight used to be, you know, only for the rich and, and it's not obviously not anymore. So would you go back if you could hey, would i go back into space yeah i think if somebody said to me hey you want to go on this flight i would go now my kids are, are my youngest is 15 so it and my husband is i think maybe possibly at the end of his military career after 39 40 years so <laughs> you know it's it's yeah it'd be fun and 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 aside from the the engagement that you were talking about that you do for space related stuff, what else have you worked on since? Because I know it's a, another question I think, or another thing people wonder about astronauts is, is 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 how do you get excited about anything else subsequently? And which obviously quite a few astronauts, including not a few of the Apollo ones, have quite candidly admitted themselves uh, that they struggled with. Well, yes, it is common among astronauts, but. My next mountain to climb was motherhood, which is a much steeper mountain to climb <laughs> than flying in space, if you ask my opinion. Way harder. Those little kids don't come with a checklist. And it was like flying four different airplanes at the same time with, with no procedures. 
So that was, I mean, so immediately I was at least as, if not more busy than I had ever been and more challenged in that realm. Um, but in addition, I kept up the speaking engagements and, um, and I've been on a, several boards as a, a board member. Now I'm in a, um, a partner in a venture capitalist group. So, you know, doing different things, keeping it excited. I'm writing a book, which is totally out of my wheelhouse. So <laughs> that, that's really out of my comfort zone. And, and, but it's exciting. Uh, and and just finally, uh, because again, I think it's it's a thing people wonder about the degree to which the fact of having been an astronaut impinges on what the rest of us think of as normal life. You, you talk there about the, the the challenge of parenthood. Was there any point ever at which the kids may have been being slightly difficult, where you played the look? I've literally been on a malfunctioning space shuttle. You think you've got problems, card? My kids roll their eyes at the whole <laughs> thing. But I have played the, I've got a master's degree in aerospace engineering, and I think I can handle your algebra one problem. <laughs> when they told me, mom, that's not the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Commander Susan Kilrain, thank you very much for joining us. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. Thanks also to Christina Corp, founder of Space for a Better World. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.